Hello again, dear listener. This, I can confirm, is the start of the show. Welcome to find a previously recorded evening of storytelling and otherwise. This episode took place on December 20th, 2018 at the Lido, which is on their traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, or Vancouver, BC. You'll be hearing from some of the excellent lineup of writers and comedians we had that night, including Andrea Jin, Rachel Jansen, Emily Riddle, and Hassan Namir. And throughout the episode, you'll hear music from Kellarissa, who you can find on iTunes and Bandcamp. The song we started the show with today is called Ships in the Night from their most recent album, Ocean Electro. And we have a live show coming up at the Lido on February 25th, 2019, that you can come and check out if you'd like. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be a real nice time. No pressure. For more info on all that, go to affineshow.com or follow us on the social medias at affineshow. Okay, and I'm your host, Cole Nowicki. Let's get on with it. Enjoy the show. Up first, we have wonderful comedian and human, Andrea Jin. Thank you. How are you? Okay. Okay. Um, so, so I had I had my uh, boyfriend over for um, for my family's dinner. My family had him over for dinner for the first time recently. Whoops! Did you spill something? Whoop! Clean that up. Mm. I don't know what to do. Get some shit there. You guys are dumb. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um. Okay. Back to me. Pay attention to me now. Okay. Um. <laughs> where Where is it? Okay. So I I had my boyfriend over for dinner at my family's place for the first time. And my whole family were all immigrants. Like, no one speaks English in my house, except for me. Like, we sort of decided that together as a group. <laughs> that I was gonna be the representative, you know? Like, we drew straws and I lost, and <laughs> I had to learn English. And so, like, they're all very foreign, and my boyfriend is white, and so he, it was weird, because my grandma, she's lived in China her whole life. She's like 60, she's lived like 60 something years in China. And so she hasn't been around a lot of like Caucasian people. So in that aspect, she's kind of stupid. You know, she's smart in other areas, like dumpling making, I don't know. But <laughs> it's true. And and like, she was like, oh, um, I'm gonna make him a salad. Like tell him I'm gonna make him a salad. And I was like, okay. and. <laughs> I was like, oh, my grandma's gonna make you a salad. Like, you're gonna feel right at home. <laughs> Cause I'm stupid too. <laughs> and we're like having dinner, sitting down, and my grandma puts down the plate of salad, and it's just cut up apples tossed in mayonnaise. 
And she was like so proud of it, you know? She was like, you're welcome. Like, this is white cuisine. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed. She, <laughs> she was like, there's more mayonnaise, like if he needs it. And I was like, grandma, white people don't just eat mayonnaise. Do we have ketchup? Is there ketchup? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you got a new drink? <laughs> Was it free? No. That's okay, my fault. Okay. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Let's rein this back in. Uh, I, I, I lived in Ontario for a little bit for school, for university. I went to uh, Western in London, Ontario. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, it was weird. This is a story about how it's bad. So like the people there, there is like mostly, it's like the inverse of my grandma where they haven't been a around a lot of Asian people. So they didn't really know how to act around me. Like all the students I went to school with, like my peers, they would um, always remind me that I'm Asian. Like they, they would make fun of me, you know, and like call me names like Cindy. <laughs> which is the name of the other Asian girl that lives there. <laughs> so I was offended. Um, <laughs> but I wanted friends, so I was like, huh, you guys are so creative. Like, huh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and every day I would wake up and I would be like, oh my God, white people are better than me. <laughs> <laughs> it's because there were so many more of them than me, you know? But here, I am back on top, so it's okay. <laughs> this is my city. Uh, <laughs> I, I did, I moved here when I was 10 from China, and I'm 11 now, and... <laughs> I love being 11, and I... <laughs> When I moved here, it was such a big change from China. It was very different. Like, all the holidays were different. Like, we didn't have Halloween back in China, and but I, like, wanted to fit in here, and I wanted to go trick-or-treating, right? Um, it's a big thing to do. But, like, in China, I, it's, like, w it's weird because in China, no one trusts anybody. There's no community. Everyone's just like, oh, everyone's trying to hurt you. And I was born under the one child policy. So my parents were like scared I was going to die all the time, you know? And, and, uh, but yeah, I wanted to go trick or treating. And, uh, that was a problem because my family couldn't wrap their heads around that idea. They were like, wait, so people, like kids go to random houses and they ask for candy and then they eat it afterwards? I'm like, yeah, can I go? It's a holiday. But what about all the poison? <laughs> people don't poison people here. Why? <laughs> it's like a good opportunity, I don't. <laughs> um, yeah, do you guys get waxed sometimes? <laughs> get waxes? Cool, I get waxed sometimes. I'm not embarrassed. Uh, I, <laughs> I get waxed sometimes when like things are good, you know? And like, <laughs> uh, 
And uh, I normally I go to this lady in Yale Town, and she like wears this white lab coat when she does it, even though she's just waxing vaginas. You know, I don't think there's anything scientific about it, but it's like. <laughs> but like I like it. It's nice. You know, like <laughs> I like that she takes her job as seriously as scientists do. It's cool. So. <laughs> So uh, she had to move to Montreal, though, because there was, like, better pussy there for her to wax, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's what she told me. And, <laughs> and then, so I had to look for someone else. And I looked near where I live, which is in, like, South Vancouver, and it's not as nice as Yieldhound, but it's fine. And I found this lady, this Asian lady, and she, I had a weird experience. I'll just tell you what happened. So I arrive at her wax studio slash lounge. Wait, no, wax studio slash home. Fuck, I fucked that up. Okay, so <laughs> wax studio slash lounge, just like a hip, hipster place. No. no, home, her home. She does her business out of her home. That was the point of that. So <laughs> I arrive at her home and I book for her upper lip and a Brazilian wax. And the first thing, I walked through the door and she was very excited. She was like, okay, so we're going to do your upper lip first because I don't want warts to show up on your face. <laughs> I was like, well, hold on. <laughs> like, she, my, I, my pants were still on and like no one's ever, I mean, she's never seen my vagina before. So I don't know where that was coming from. Like. Who told her to say that? Is she friends with the girls that used to bully me in high school? Like, I don't... <laughs> like, why am I getting roasted right now? <laughs> I'm paying for a service, you know? And... But whatever, we move on from that, because I didn't say anything. I'm, like, scared of everybody. So... <laughs> So we move on, like she's doing the wax and like I'm, she's waxing my butthole. <laughs> I'm sorry if you don't have a butthole. <laughs> but like stay with me. So she was waxing my butthole and like I was like pretty relaxed cause it's like warm. And, <laughs> and I'm very vulnerable in that position, right? So it's like, I trust her. I've paid her $50 to tr for this trust and like, <laughs> So, I'm like lying down, I'm like, oh, warm wax on my butt. And then she, and she was like, oh, I haven't talked, no, she didn't say this, but she, she, I assume she was thinking, oh, I haven't talked in a while, so uh, I should talk now, it's time. Um, so she was like, she was like, oh, you must be thinking, this is so awkward, no one's ever seen my butthole before, and now Wendy is looking at it. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> First of all, I didn't know her name was Wendy before that. Like, that's how she introduced herself. Like, she's so bold, you know? She, she introduced herself while touching my asshole. But anyways. <laughs> and also, like, what kind of person does she think I am? Like, in her mind, I have genital warts. But, like, no one's ever seen my butthole before. How did I do that? So I just go through life, I'm like, hey, what's up? You can have sex with me with no protection, even though you got some warts on your dick, like it's fine. Everybody's different. <laughs> but like, whatever you do, don't look at my butthole. 
And I, I know you're gonna try because of this conversation. It's like, whoa, what's wrong with your butthole? Nothing. I just, I just don't want you to look at it. Because I'm saving it for Wendy. All right, thanks, guys. Up next is Rachel Jansen, a recent MFA graduate from UBC. Rachel's work can be found in the Globe and Mail, Geist, Masonouve, Antigonish Review, and Room Magazine, among others. This year, one of her essays was longlisted for the New Quarterly's Edna Stabler Personal Essays Contest, and her short story, Shortlisted, an event magazine's speculative fiction contest. If you can't find her in her apartment watching trashy reality TV show reruns, she's probably drinking tea somewhere by the sea. Here's Rachel. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you for braving the winds to be here. Um, so I'm going to do a bit of a mixed bag tonight. So it'll be some poetry, some um, short fiction. Um, so this first poem, um, I was single for five years. And most of it, I was like, fuck yeah, being single is great. And then some days, I'd be like, some nights, sorry, I'd get really dramatic about it. And I knew I was being dramatic about it, but I couldn't stop being dramatic about it. Um, so this poem was kind of born from that. So, what lifts the tempest? In the loose hours of night, my hand becomes jetsome, mind unmoored and mangy. I should be immune to the pitching, how yearning bowls me over, pins me to the walls of myself, funnels seawater down my throat. Funny, that bereaved means taken from, as though, as though only subtraction leaves you limp. Bodies were built for touch like sails for wind, and it's easy to feel aimless never having either. I look to the ballooned moon like some lighthouse. Remember, it's what lifts the tempest. Is it taking the ship metaphor too far if I say I'm looking for a mate? Too late. I already put a Swiss cheese moon in the poem, and I bellowed, but no one seemed to hear me. Suppose I'm a boat built in a small glass bottle. Suppose what I'm circling is the drain. I spy my brain beside me. Even if I found another, we'd have to break each other open before we ever really got anywhere. Sentimental is what these vessels are. Rigged. Um, and then this poem, um, I was fortunate enough to go to Scotland this summer, which is where my mom's family is from. Um, and it was beautiful, but kind of surreal because you realize how much of it is catered to the tourist to, at the expense of like the natural beauty. And then it kind of got me thinking about how much of that is true for humans in general that we kind of... Um, use the world as our entertainment and only save what we value and what makes a good show, so. Glaciation. Ice pulls back like a curtain. Sheep bleeding on a tussock. Silver fleece glinting like the side of a knife every tourist imagines at their neck. Myself in the middle of a bowl of hills. Heather's the main attraction here. They say it turns frost white where a fairy lays for final rest. But the back of my brochure also says Heather is native to the land. Uh, isn't native, land-torched annually to promote its growth. Storefronts suggest my ancestors wore woolen, wore woolen kilts, belted melancholic odes, whiskey burning their throats. I, too, have an affinity for whimsy, damp clothes, green seas awash with jellyfish like plastic bags. But the flat palm of sudden acceleration between, against my chest warns of the distance between where we are and where we think we should be. Copernicus knew, and the sheep will never guess how damn lucky they are to look like a poem. 
Um, and then this next one, um, I was in Cortez uh, earlier this year, some of my best friends, um, and we were doing a pickling workshop, which was super fun, but it was, we were staying in a farmhouse that was in the middle of nowhere, very vacant, um, very beautiful, but we were playing Catan and drinking wine, and what we didn't know was there was another guest um, at the farmhouse, so when we heard the door open, we were kind of like... <coughs> And then we also didn't know she was wearing headphones, like blaring Avril Lavigne. So she's like starts walking up the stairs. And we're like, hello. She doesn't answer. We're like, hello. She doesn't answer. So by the time she was at the top of the, the, top of the stairs, uh, we were like shaking in a corner, screaming. Um, and then that kind of just set the tone for the night. And she ended up like raving around the farmhouse till 6 a.m. And she was harmless, but we ended up pulling all our mattresses into one room because we were so scared. So this is about that. Um, fermentation. We push broken cabbage into brine, add sprigs of dill, balls of allspice, skin garlic that slips through my hands. Sleep hangs off me like an old shirt, and I rub my eyes until they salt. Last night, we were kept awake by someone stomping around the farmhouse until sun squeezed out darkness like a sliver. We pulled our mattresses to one room, slept lightly with our sheets tight to our chests, breath shallow and in unison. We woke the next morning sour-mouthed, spent, spent the day stuffing roughage underwater to turn it alkaline. Ferment, ferver, to boil. Burning in our thighs, our lungs when we run, adrenaline like keys between our fingers, between our knuckles. What will come of this fear we women have? Our bodies so full of acid and salt. Maybe one day we'll find the sharp edges of scales on our heads, gills on our necks, return to the sea transformed. And then this last poem, um, the title kind of gives it away. So, my sister is a paramedic. Every day death lures like a man in a boxed van with candy. You deadlift 200 pounds, build enough bulk to haul patients' fingers from death's sliding side door. When death steals through the city, you trail death's van with your own, ghosts in the jump seat chewing bubble gum. Sometimes the patient has crystals in her feet, sometimes crystals in her vein, and death sits on the couch counting cash. Sometimes death is lazy, feet up on the dash, and sometimes it sprints to put its finger on the buzzer first, egomaniac that death is. It helps to personify. Just like it helps to imagine you driving an ice cream truck, delivering pop clock-shaped popsicles instead. You once scraped a kitten corpse from the licorice of summer pavement so a group of big-kneed boys across the way wouldn't have to understand the terrible gore of innocence, and still you expect me to believe you when you tell me everything will be okay. Thank you. And then my final piece is just um, a little flash fiction. Um, so it's called... It's, Ingrid, which is not a very creative title, but. Um, Ingrid is everywhere all at once. How, her classmates ask. I don't know, she says. I just know that I'm here, but I'm also in a bowling alley in Chicago and on a beach in Mumbai. Look, out of Ingrid's hand falls a fistful of sand. The teacher says, eyes forward, everyone, and the children's heads swivel, forgetting about the girl who simultaneously swings from a tree in Ecuador and hunts fairies in Scotland. And so that, kids, is where babies come from. The teacher says, Ingrid holds up a baby, sticky and warm from the pediatric ward of the hospital in St. John's. She gives her thumb for it to suck in place of its mother's nipple. 
Ingrid. Yes, miss? Won't you put that dolly away? It's not so easy to go back. Ingrid. Ingrid makes the baby disappear, and the children's eyes ask how she's done it again. In Tasmania, where Ingrid also exists, a teacher would never explain such sex in such a childish way. Plus, be sting. She informs the teacher as much, but the teacher only inquires what it is Ingrid wants exactly. I just want to run together into myself, but it's very hard to see where the center is. That revokes lunchtime computer privileges, and at recess, Ingrid takes requests. A Hello Kitty toy from Japan, pistachio gelato from Italy, a lemur from Madagascar. Can't go back in time, so no dead mother, sorry. She stuffs a wad of cash into the crotch of her leggings. At night, while Ingrid listens to, Meta to Metallica to lull herself to sleep, her little sister shuffles into her room, mucus like a slug on the back of her hand. From Siberia, Ingrid brings ice to the place where her sister hurts, tell hers, tells her the swelling will go down soon. Thank you. Now we have Emily Riddle, a Nehia writer, researcher, and policy wonk. She is dedicated to both the Oilers and the end of Canada. Her writing has appeared in Teen Vogue, Guts Magazine, and Canadian Art, among others. Here's Emily. Thank you. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? So 2018 is almost over. We have about 10 more days, and I've been reflecting this week on how I didn't let any men break my heart in 2018, <laughs> which is pretty good. I don't expect that in 2019. It's like chaotic bisexual life. Um, <laughs> but two women did break my heart. Um, and so in reaction to that, in reflecting, I wrote a poem. I'm definitely not a poet. Um, about four cream men that I've loved or fucked. So that's what I'm starting with. <laughs> I stopped talking to you because you called me Pocahontas. And even though you stole me a lot of Oilers gear from the store you worked at, um, that was still fucked. So you sent me a bunch of angry texts and caps lock on my first ever cell phone. I laughed in my high school bathroom with green tiles and ignored your texts. I was a band nerd and you were a football player. It was never going to work. Two, we sat across the table from each other at a ramen restaurant in Vancouver. Six years after I found out you got back together, or never actually left, your white girlfriend, we were trying to be acquaintances, <laughs> despite having grown apart in almost every way imaginable. You told me you do not date indigenous women anymore, <laughs> because you do not want to interrupt their ascendance to greatness, to becoming professors, lawyers, to advocating for our people. You said white women are able to dedicate more time to you, and I think that's true. <laughs> Not sure what Franz Fanon would say about that, but he also ended up with a white girl. <laughs> Three, you were my boss, a pit boss at the Res Casino that I worked at the summer before I moved to Vancouver. The thing about working in a casino is that all the men call you a half-breed cunt on the regular and you stay up until noon every day. There isn't much to do in Edmonton in the winter at 4 a.m. other than eat Denny's or fuck. Once I showed up to your apartment in red lingerie and you had fallen asleep and didn't even answer your door. In a classic cream move, I sent you a message telling you what you had missed. <laughs> In another classic cream move, you posted a sad public Facebook status about how you fucked up. <laughs> 
When I moved to Vancouver, you sent me a care package full of craft dinner. I guess that's great love. <laughs> Number four. You were just like my mom, similar traumas, and a handsome Cree package, so I knew you, I was in trouble. You had a swanky apartment overlooking the river and hair longer than mine, impressive, and both seemed like significant accomplishments. You were also my boss at the Res Casino the summer before I moved to Vancouver. Also from the same reserve <laughs> as this other guy. After I, left, <laughs> after I left town, you dated my little sister's best friend. I guess there isn't much to do in Edmonton in the winter at 4 a.m. other than uh, eat Denny's or fuck. <laughs> so the next piece is an essay that some folks have heard before, and it's, um, little, it's shifting gears a little bit. It's an essay about both sides of my family, um, and it's entitled, An Immodest Proposal, The Black Widow of Treaty 6. So when my dad was 18, his parents got divorced. Now, before I proceed into this, the juicy parts, I want you to know that it's taken 27 years, my whole life, to collect the story from various family members, often after multiple bottles of wine were shared at holidays. And how I pieced this together is no doubt imperfect. But that is how most 40-year-old stories are told. My grandparents owned a wig and makeup empire in Edmonton. This is part of my femme inheritance. Both this empire and their marriage, which included four sons, ended rather dramatically in a way that continues to divide my dad's side of the family more than 40 years later. As the final act that ended this marriage, my grandpa left my grandmother for her best friend at the time, who also worked for the company. Of course, there was a lot of buildup to this point that I won't share that I've learned recently. <laughs> But that has always been the main point hurled around. My grandpa married my step-grandma and they were together until the end of his life, which was about 13 years ago. So I developed relationships with both these grandparents separately. My grandpa lived in Edmonton for most of the years we were Earthside together. He came over every Saturday morning with treats and the newest Disney VHS and we watched golf with my dad. I heard my grandpa tell my dad the same stories for years and my dad asked new questions about the stories each week. This is an important lesson in love that I hold to this day. My grandpa was similar to me in that he was a visual person and had to map things out to understand them. He would tell a story, often using knickknacks on the coffee table to show where people were. His stories um, were about his life living around North America for work, about his dogs, who he loved dearly, I think more than all of his grandchildren, he had a lot, <laughs> and about the news. My grandpa died in 2012 after his second battle with cancer. His death was the first time I remember seeing my dad openly crying. My grandpa had his wake at the Northlands horse races in Edmonton, where we, he requested that we bet on horses, drink rum and coke, and place Frank Sinatra. And I did all these things at 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted us to enjoy ourselves with his vices. This is also a lesson in love. So after the divorce, my grandmother moved back to the Lower Mainland, where she was born, and found the love of her life, my grandpa Bob. He cherished her deeply in a way that she wanted to be seen. This is a lesson in love. The first try is not always right. Tragically, Grandpa Bob died when I was a young child, and my grandpa was once, um, or my grandma, was single once again. My grandma remarried once more and has had a few boyfriends since. It's very interesting to talk on the phone about your grandma's breakup. She had one in the last six months, <laughs> and she's 85, so it's a unique situation. <laughs> 
Talking to your grandma in her, yeah, her 80s about her breakups is something that I cherish. Her sons, my dad, and uncles have often made jokes about the number of men's pensions my grandma has collected. <laughs> but she has taught me a lesson in self-love. Always value, value yourself, and if you're trying to find a man, make sure he values you, values you more than that. These are my ancestral Munyao teachings that I carry with me everywhere as a Nihiao Skoyo. You could tell me white people do not have culture, but I've sure learned how to hustle and take up space from my white kin. Spider teachings. Though climate change will likely soon change this, there are no black widows in my territory. Childhood summers spent in Okanagan territory acquainted me with these creatures. Nisimus, my sister, and I would share a tent at the Bear Creek campground near the West Bank First Nation, and she would, as young sisters do, leave the zipper open inviting these creatures into our tent. <laughs> I never had a serious run-in with one, though I did once, to my dismay, have to crush one with a PBR can. <laughs> However, back at home I was well acquainted with understandings of Kokomuyamao, the spiders that our were our grandmothers watching over us, and they were to be respected and not killed especially with a can of uh, second-rate hipster beer. <laughs> this is why I have made treaty with the large spiders that live in my bathroom. Since I never got to meet my nokum, who died before she was 30, I like to often think that she's watching over me in my bathroom as I take luxurious baths in my pink bathtub or struggle with diva cup removal. <laughs> she is ever-present in one way or another. Spiders have taught me many lessons in my life, and as Tanya Tagak once tweeted, respect and fear are cousins. Um, so I've also read an article this week recently that was like that spiders could eat, there's a number of spiders in the world that could actually eat all the humans. Um, so that's another thing I should add to this essay, honestly. <laughs> Mobilizing those lessons is another challenge, which leads me to my immodest proposal. All the decolonial theory bros are always on about the land, how manly they feel on the land, how we have to get the land back. I'm not immune to these decolonial theory bros either. I wish I was. <laughs> how we are the land. Um, beyond entirely not being sure what they're referring to when they say the land in English, are we not on the land right now? Is this not Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh land right here? What they're slowly lacking in their bro discourse is a strategy on how to get the land back and some level of criticality about who is actually controlling the land we have jurisdiction over right now. The late Arthur Manuel told us that First Nations have control, in the form of reserves is what I'm talking about, of approximately 0.2% of the land mass of Canada. But with um, most First Nations being run by men, mine definitely included, what land do Eskoyak control? Unlike art whose works Distend, extend beyond books, most of the men writing these books about are writing books about revolution, not starting one. As a Treaty 6 Nihiao Skoyo, it appears to me that I'm supposed to wait until these bros get our land back before we talk about any sort of gender justice on our territories. About why I grew up without a cookum, about why I don't have any indigenous women in my life who have not been sexually assaulted, about why we have official jurisdiction over a fraction of 0.2%. Apparently feminism is frivolous, and as long as we protect ourselves from termination tables, this is a subtweet, <laughs> and the death of recognition, we can maybe begin to talk about why the people advocating for our liberation are often rampant misogynists. I remind you that it was the Skoywak at the Treaty 6 negotiations that told the men what to ask for, that since we did not sign any treaty papers that our land was not ceded, 
that those bros would have been severely lost without us, that we told them water was not to be negotiated with, that as long as the rivers flow means as long as the waters of human creation flow. In fact, we have been rather lost since we collectively stopped listening to the women, two-spirit, queer, non-binary folks in our nation. Sure, lots of great things have happened. Obviously, I have all these good friends over here. <laughs> but overall, we have been dealing with a lot of shit. So here I am proposing a solid strategy on how to get the land back, one that considers both my teachings from my Nehiao mom about spiders as our grandmothers, and teachings from my Munyao side about hustling and getting what you want from men. So step one. Find a single white man with significant land holdings in your territory, and in my case, Treaty 6, <laughs> which is a lot of central Alberta and Saskatchewan and like a little sliver of Manitoba. Make him fall in love with you. Pull out all the stops. Tell him where his, uh, let him know where his G-spot really is, possibly also related to the past set. <laughs> Flatter him as necessary and to the point where you can still respect yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Men are so desperate for love and validation and rely on romantic relationships to receive it. Easy, there you go. Last step, number, or not second last step. <laughs> I know as a queer anti-colonialist guayo, I'm supposed to tell you that the state recognition of marriage is inviting Canada into the bedroom, but I have to let you know that I love weddings <laughs> and I want you all to get married and invite me. <laughs> <laughs> and like state mechanisms, other state mechanisms, we can utilize this to our advantage. No one is getting married these days, and maybe that's because um, all my friends are grad students and gays or just like Vancouverites trying to pay rent. <laughs> but marriage is a key component of this political proposal because as my grandma taught me, you have to have the paperwork to ensure you get the money. <laughs> so the last step. Number four, I'm not suggesting anything particular for this step, but you can possibly imagine, based off the title of Black Widow. Um, <laughs> but I'm hoping you do not, do not get crushed by a metaphorical PBR can before you're the sole person on the land title. XA, thank you <laughs> for getting me. <laughs> Our final performer of the evening was Hassan Namir. Hassan was born in Iraq and graduated from Simon Fraser University with a BA in English, receiving the Ying Chen Creative Writing Student Award. He's the author of God in Pink, which won the Lambda Literary Award for Best Gay Fiction, and was chosen as one of the top 100 books of 2015 by the Globe and Mail. His work has also been featured on the Huffington Post, Shaw TV, Airbnb, and in the film God in Pink, a documentary. He lives with his husband in Vancouver. Here's Hassan. <clears throat> thank you so much, Cole, for having me, and thank you so much to my friends and everybody for being here. I'm so happy. Uh, I'm going to be reading a couple poems from my upcoming poetry book, War Torn. Um, it's going to be published next year by Book Hug um, on April 10th, which happens to be my husband's birthday. <laughs> um, um, it started off as, um, like, um, it was my English 472 um, chapbook. Um, I worked with uh, Jordan Scott, one of my favorite and uh, most amazing poets in Canada. And um, all th throughout the years, I worked on it, and I kept re rewriting it. And, uh, and you know, with, with poetry, it's, it's not easy to get it published, for sure, so, unlike, you know, uh, fiction and novels. But, you know, you know, time and dedication, and thank God, you know, like, Jay and uh, Hazel Miller actually believed in my work, so I'm very thankful and grateful for them. And very grateful for my editor and friend, Shazia Aramji, who actually has helped me so much as well throughout this process. Uh, this is War Torn. 
This is 1990. This is the Gulf War. This is a story of a man who dresses like a man, who talks like a man, who eats like a man. This is 2011. This is another war. This is a story of a man who dresses like a man, who talks like a man, who eats like a man. This is 1990. This is when I held on to you. This is a story of a man who walks like a man, who pees like a man, who fucks like a man. This is 2011. This is when I hoped you would. This is a story of a man who farts like a man, who drives like a man, who shits like a man. This is 1990. This is when I struggled for you. This is a story of a man who pays like a man, who drinks like a man, who comes like a man. This is 2011. This is when you fought with them. This is a story of a man who drives like a man, who cries like a man, who loves another man. This is 1990. This is a story of Shad. This is 2011. This is a story of Luti. This is 1990. This is a story of queer. This is 2011. This is a story of a faggot. Take off your pants and blow. Bang, bang, bang. I can taste your looty lips. I can hear my mother's cries. Let me hold your arms, Ashad. And another says, my mother. I can exist in you, the other me. Can make them happy. Let me rub against you. But don't taste my sweet vomit. I can feel your rough scruff. But turn your face against this. Let me come to you in joy, the holy prophets of God. I can enjoy the milky white against the heathens. Let me go and forever remember God's Jannah. In God's Jannah shall men be attended by boys graced with eternal youth, the sons of Sodomites. Take off your pants and blow, bang, bang, bang. Karar Noshi's hair was blonde, long, straight, green eyes, glowing social media, shot in the head twice. Muhammad al-Mutayri was Shia. Not that it mattered. He was just another Luti, stabbed to death. The other was anonymous. He was shot within two days. People of the Lut be damned. Kill all the Lutis and the Shahs. I want to see my mother. Slaughter. These are the cries of a young Luti. This is the blood that seeps from a torn piece of flesh. 1996. He was eight. Don't tell anyone about this sad, pathetic little boy or else I will hurt you. He pushed deeper and deeper. It became a painless numb. Yet a flesh forever torn. Drenched in drool, his lips vomited sweat. An animal slaughtered on an eat day. Whatever happened to honoring blood? No, what are you afraid of? His blood sprayed from the umbilical cord. He cried in the arms of his brother. He stripped his clothes and pushed quite the birthday gift. He came out of his mother's womb and cried, Dem. He was pink and red. Tomorrow he would be one nine. 
my brother, my brother, you sliced the umbilical cord and threw me back in the blood. How to kill homosexuals. Number one, rub surfaces with lube. Number two, condemn them, shayateen lut. Number three, shame them. Number four, strike them with shoes. Number five, let your spit drip. Number six, ease the tension. Number seven, you must whip. Number eight, stone to death. Number nine, after gently push a finger into. Number 10, you must hang them. Number 11, push in and turn them out. This is called Luti and Shad. Do you remember summer 2003, Mesopotamia? Today is a holy Friday. We must all be pure and clean. We must wash our sins and grime. Because in Iran, we don't have homosexuals like your homosexuals. The rays of the sun fighting the young soldiers, Luti and Shad. The hellish hairs of fire leave no rash on me. You're a man. What's a man? Halal is just a word. Back, chest, arm, because today is holy. We must wash our crimes. You're a man. Am I a man's man? The desert horses nigh. The friends jump into the unknown. Land on the fire of Allah. The scent of saffron. If you remember, their eyes, fear and jealousy. Allahu Akbar. Bang, bang, bang. I'm the Luti. Lonely hand, bloodied heart, gripped the flag. Then I remember to remember, Luti and Shad, envy their namesakes, needles and pink. They fled Mesopotamia. Their horses dissipated. Uh, euphoria is temporary. Thank you so much. All right, that's it. This is the end of the show. Thanks again to all the storytellers, Kellarissa, the Lido for having us, Mike Brown for recording us, No Fun Radio for playing us, and you, dear listener, for listening. We'll leave you with Kellarissa's Ocean Electric. <laughs>